This morning, we're going to be in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 7, starting in verse 24. Uh, I should let you know, as I adjust the microphone, there we go. I should let you know that uh, this text has actually made me pretty uncomfortable to teach for a long period of time. Uh, Put it succinctly, in this text, we're going to see Jesus refer to somebody who has come to him for help on the basis of a derogatory term. So he's going to say something pretty mean to somebody who shows up desperate to have Jesus' help. Which if you're new with us, uh, then you should know that as we've gone throughout the Gospel of Mark, we've seen time and time again these people come to Jesus because they're desperate, come to Jesus because they're needy, come to Jesus for All of these reasons having to do with the situations in which they find themselves in. And Jesus is constantly meeting them with grace and compassion. Yet here we we get not really the compassion and empathy that we expect from Jesus, but rather we get something that feels a bit like a dismissal. And even though Jesus actually does fulfill this woman's request, if we don't understand this text properly one of the things that we'll feel is that that doesn't really soften the blow of what Jesus says to her. And so I think as we get into this, we'll need to both state the main point pretty clearly, but then identify the people in the room, so to speak. We need to identify who the woman is that Jesus is talking to. We need to identify who Jesus is in this text, and we need to identify who his audience is. So uh, we've got a lot to unpack Uh, And we have a lot of questions that we have to deal with. So let's pray, and then we will jump into Mark chapter 7, verses 24 through 30. Father in heaven, uh, we come to you and we come to this text, and we ask that you soften our hearts, that you let us not presume upon our own righteousness, but that you let us hear in this text the message of your grace and your mercy, the message of the gospel which is embedded in this text. And I pray that as we look at it, that the Holy Spirit inside us convict us of where we have established markers of purity and defilement, where we have cast some people as insiders and others as outsiders. So Father, let us see what Jesus is doing in this text, and let us see how it ministers to us, how it opens up the message of your kingdom to us. We pray these things in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, Mark chapter 7, beginning in verse 24. And from there, he, speaking of Jesus, arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house And did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and to throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. 
the demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found her child lying in a bed, the demon gone. So I have titled this sermon, The Dog's Day and the Kid's Crumbs, uh, to highlight what we're going to see in this passage. And I think when you put this text, actually in the context of what Drew preached last week, the main point becomes pretty clear. Drew's point last week was that defilement does not come from outside of you. There's nothing, no things in this world, whether it be clean hands or uh, whether it be uh, keeping traditions, there's no things in this world that can come from outside, inside of you and either make you pure or defiled. Similarly, Drew talked about last week how what makes us clean is not adherence to the external law, but rather is faith in Jesus and repentance of our sins. In this narrative, continuing right after that, we have the same theme picked up, but rather than being applied to things, hands and traditions, it's applied to people. It's applied to Jew and Gentile. And so Jesus' interaction with this woman, actually what we'll see in the text, is that she is the embodiment of the unclean, of the ritualistically uncure. She was defiled because of who she was. And yet Jesus is going to deal with that. And so the main point, I think, from this text is pretty clear. The power of the kingdom is in some way, shape, or form for the Gentiles who are the unclean as well. It is not limited to the Jewish people or to the the clean, the okay, the pure. It's crystal clear in this text. And I would actually go so far as to say it's crystal clear in this church. Because in order to be clean by the, the standards of the day, you had to be Jewish, ethnically, religiously. But Jesus' message is that the gospel goes out from the Jews to the Gentiles as well. That the kingdom is expanding. That there are no people who are inherently clean or unclean. And if you in this church, whether in the room or outside of the room, If you are not by birth, ethnicity, or religion Jewish, then you're a Gentile by the biblical definition. Which means every single one of us in here should be applauding this kingdom expansion message. Because it's the message that draws us in. It is the message that makes us clean and us pure too. Yet, we can easily neglect this truth. Having received the gospel, embraced Jesus as our Savior, we ourselves, though unworthy, can then start to keep other people at arm's length because something inside of us tells us that they're unclean. And so we actually end up being hypocrites, desiring a church or a group of the pure, not realizing that we too, by certain standards, would be defiled. Or... We could be in the place of the Syrophoenician woman in this text. And we could embrace sort of a a halfway gospel where we admit in some superficial way that we're uneasy, that we're unworthy, that we're sinners. But when Jesus gets specific and he actually places his finger on something in our lives that is defiled, that he desires to make pure, we can get our hackles up. We can push back, and our pride can take over, 
When we find out that there's an order to the kingdom or a, the way things work with Jesus, that can upset us if we don't understand what's going on here. And so we need this passage to challenge those two notions. That some are pure and some are defiled. Or that we only admit sin in some superficial, surface-level, vague way. So let's dig a bit deeper. Let's look at this text. Let's look at the uncomfortable nature of what Jesus does here. And let's see what's just below the surface. And in essence, it's going to take a little while to get to these things, but in essence, I want to draw out three things. The irrationality of malicious prejudice for Christians, the necessity of humility for Christians, and the practicality of prayer for Christians. I want us to see these three things in this text. So, looking at the text, I think that the careful reader would note that in this micro-narrative, the hinge point of it is on the comments Jesus makes to the Syrophoenician woman and on how she responds. And that's drawn out in the text because Jesus says, for this statement, the demon is cast out. For the statement, your daughter is clean. Notice that, that's purpose. That's reason, result. You said something back to me, and for that reason... I have cast the demon out of your daughter. Now, while these things are present in the text, one of the things we should note is that we don't see for this reason as Jesus' compassion, like in Mark 1. We don't see for this reason the faith of the person who has come to him, like the paralytic in Mark 2. We don't see that it has to do with the desperation of the person in front of him, like in Mark 5 with the man who is uh, enslaved to an army legion of demons. But rather, it's for the statement she makes, which means that's where our hinge is. That's where we need to focus in. What does her statement tell us about what she sees in Jesus? Ultimately, though, it's going to come down to who she is, because all of it is triggered on the basis of how Jesus speaks to her. And why would he speak that way to her? So let's think for a minute. Who is this woman? Mark gives us a few clues to her identity, and especially how it relates to Jesus. We are told of her geographic home, of her ethnic home, and of her spiritual home. Let's look at these three things in turn. First, the geographic home. We're told at the very outset of the text in verse 31, then, or sorry, uh, no, verse 24, from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. This would have already provoked feelings of anger and animosity in the hearts of Mark's original readers because Tyre and Sidon are emblematic of being an enemy. Specifically, Tyre was an enemy of Israel on a historic level, like close to a thousand years, give or take. They had uh, been a geopolitical enemy pressing on Israel from the very inception of Israel as a nation state. Tyre is where ancient Canaan would have been. So the land which the Jews entered to conquer it as a spiritual act of judgment, which God gave to them, the armies they met in that land were from Tyre. This is why when Matthew tells this story, he actually calls her not Syrophoenician, not from Tyre, but he says she's a Canaanite, trying to draw our attention to this old rivalry, this military enemy. Not only that, the Old Testament narrative develops, Tyre turns into a city-state, and though it fluctuates in power, it is a constant side in, or a thorn in the side of Israel. 
You can see this most clearly, actually, when you read the prophetic literature, where Tyre comes up again and again and again. In Isaiah 23, there's a judgment oracle against Tyre for what they did to the people of Israel. In Jeremiah 47, similarly, we get a story of Tyre's destruction because of what they've done. In Ezekiel 26, 27, and 28, three chapters, you get a prophetic diatribe against Tyre because God is so angry with them. And it goes like this. This is how it starts. Behold, I am against you, O Tyre. I will bring up many nations against you. As the sea brings up its waves, they shall destroy the walls of Tyre and break down her, to her towers. I will scrape her soil from her. I will make her bare rock. She shall be in the midst of the sea, a place for the spreading of nets. For I have spoken, declares the Lord God. And she shall become plunder for the nations, and her daughters on the mainland shall be killed with the sword. Then they will know that I am the Lord. That intensity goes on for three chapters and is carried through with a similar tone in Joel 3.4, in Amos 1.9, in Zechariah 9.2, all declaring similar things. Tyre is an enemy of Israel on a level that for us as modern Americans is hard to imagine because our country hasn't even existed for as long as Tyre and Israel were at war. Probably, though, the most famous thing that Tyre was known for is Tyre is the birthplace of the character Jezebel in the Old Testament. This evil pagan woman who actually marries a king of Israel and seduces his heart to be led astray to follow foreign gods to exile God's prophets, and to raise up false teachers to lead the people of Israel away. The animosity carried as well into Jesus' day. In Acts 12, verse 20, we could read, Now Herod, remember he's the king of Israel during Jesus' day, was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And they came to him with one accord, having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. Now, that's kind of like a weird line, I understand, but a uh, commentator named David Garland unpacks it this way. He says, the city of Tyre, what this presents us with, is well stocked with produce from Galilee. While those who lived in Galilee grew the food, frequently went hungry. Economically, Tyre took the bread away from Galilee. Galileans perceived Tyre as their political and or as a political enemy as posing a permanent threat because of their expansionist policies since there was no natural boundaries to mark off their two regions. So remember a few weeks ago we talked about Jesus multiplying bread and what that would have meant to the Israelites who saw bread as life. Well, these people, the people from Tyre, they take the bread because of political rivalries because of economic extortion with Israel's false king. But that's not enough. You get her ethnic home as well. We're told that this woman is Syrophoenician by birth. Now, that is simply a term that actually means the geographic region where they are. Tyre and Sidon were in a geographic area called Phoenicia. And Phoenicia had 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 been broken apart different times by different administrations, meaning different political entities ruled over different parts at different times. Where Tyre is, that was once ruled over by the Syrians, hence Syro-Phoenician, because they're in Phoenicia, but once ruled over by the Syrians. Here's why that's interesting. He's in Tyre. There's no need to tell us that she's Syro-Phoenician. It's completely unnecessary information. It's a lot like saying, 
yeah, I was in Santa Cruz and I went down to the beach and had a conversation from a kid from California. Yeah, unless you tell me he's from somewhere else, anybody you meet in Santa Cruz, you would assume is Californian because that's where we're located. So the same thing's happening here. There's no reason for Mark to tell us this unless he wants to drill down so deeply who this woman is that he wants no basis for us to go, oh, well, maybe Jesus met a Jewish person there. Maybe something else was taking place. Uh, He wants to lock in to the reader's minds, this woman is from impurity and she is impurity. But the fundamental aspect of her identity we see in this text is actually her spiritual home. This is the final descriptor we get of her. The text says that she's a Gentile. Again, unnecessary information given she's not from a Jewish land. Except for there's one interesting thing going on here. There's two different words that could be used in the New Testament for Gentile. One is ethnos, where you might hear the word ethnic in there, meaning of the nations. So that word was used to just talk about where somebody was from. If they're not from Israel, they are ethnos. They are from the other nations, Gentile. The other word, though, is actually the word used here in this text, and that's Hellenos. Now, Hellenos indicated not necessarily somebody's place of birth as outside of Israel, but somebody's religion as pagan. In other words, what Mark wants us to hear is pagan, non-God-fearer doesn't care about Yahweh, doesn't know who that is. Mark wants us to associate this woman with being religiously, spiritually unclean. Which is interesting because he's going to connect this, by the way, to the daughter's spiritual state. We see the word, we see the reference to the spirit uh, that's possessing or enslaving her daughter three times. Twice it's called a demon, but the first time it pops up, it's called an unclean spirit. Why would Mark change words? Well, he wants us to associate unclean spirit with somebody who's unclean religiously. In essence, he's trying to draw a connection. This woman is spiritually pagan, and there's something that with that that has led to this woman's daughter being afflicted by an unclean spirit. So let me summarize all that, geographic home, ethnic home, spiritual home. To put it concisely, few people in the Gospels could have approached Jesus with more against them from the Orthodox Jewish perspective. A woman talking to a man was a cultural faux pas unless she was married to him. Moreover, an ethnically and religiously Gentile woman talking to a Jewish rabbi was a major violation of customs. And finally, a woman from a geographic region associated with oppression, economic extortion, militaristic antagonism, and spiritual paganism comes up to talk to Jesus. This woman, therefore, is not just a Gentile, but a member of a resented and privileged class, a foe on a historic level. Given all of that, we need to understand Jesus' response is exactly what the onlookers would have expected. He responds, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the Gentile or to take the children's bread and to throw it to the dogs. You hear that? He calls her a dog, an unclean animal, a woman who came to him out of desperation because of something afflicting her daughter. Dog. Dismissive. Insulting. 
Now, if, actually, if you look up this text in commentaries, a bunch of commentators will go, whoa, 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 there were two different words for dog. One meant street scavenger, and one meant something like a lap dog, household dog, pet, puppy even. So it's not that bad, right? If I called you a puppy, would it not be that bad? Does it make it better if I call you a dog if I'm referring to a golden retriever? It's still bad. A dog is a dog, whether it's a pampered household pet or some sort of street urchin. Much would not, um, most of us should understand that this epithet must, it can't be taken as a term of endearment, it must be understood for the offense. It must be understood as being directed at the concept of being unclean. Therefore, what we see in this text is not Jesus being his old, affable self, compassionate healer, multiplier of bread. He seems like stuck in the setting from last week where he was the abrasive prophet speaking truth to power. But I think that's intentional. This is a teaching moment. It's a moment where Jesus is trying to instruct this woman and those looking about something really, really important. So let's think about what he's trying to teach. For the onlookers, we could assume the disciples, what is he trying to teach them? Though it's shocking to us, like I said, the disciples likely would not have batted an eye at the reference to an unclean animal on this woman. In fact, I mentioned at the very beginning that I had misunderstood this passage and that something in it had made me uncomfortable teaching it for a long period of time. I've taught this passage in a number of settings, from Bible studies to young adults groups, now preaching it in front of a church, and I've never been comfortable with what took place because I missed something very crucial. You see, Jesus' MO in any given situation is to challenge the status quo. So if we see him doing exactly what the audience should ex would expect, what we should expect is that Jesus is going to do some sort of like jujitsu juke where all of a sudden he yanks the rug out from underneath people and everybody ends up confused on their backs. And that's exactly what he's going to do. You see, the disciples would have expected this because of their deep, ingrained prejudice against the Gentiles. In fact, their prejudice is so intense that Peter, the leader of the disciples, doesn't seem to get it until about Acts chapter 10. In Acts chapter 10, there's this story where Peter has a vision from God about all the unclean foods being made clean. And he's told to rise, kill, and eat. And he doesn't get it. Well, simultaneously, we're told that there's a Gentile military leader, a Roman centurion named Cornelius, who also receives a vision telling him to go seek out Peter. And here's Peter's response when Cornelius' men get Peter and bring him to Cornelius' house. It's in Acts chapter 10, starting in verse 28. And he, speaking of Peter, said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. When you read this passage in context and you understand what's going on, it's almost as if Peter's saying this out loud as much for him as for the person he's talking to. Like he has to explain to himself in some way to make sure this makes sense outside of my own head, right? God has told me that you guys aren't unclean, so I came. That seems to be what's going on. 
And in fact, what's going to happen in Acts chapter 10 is we're going to see the conversion of the first Gentiles. And so Peter sees faith come to the Gentiles. He sees the Holy Spirit descend upon them and then respond to the Holy Spirit in the same way the Jews who had the Holy Spirit did. Even still, Peter, having had this vision, having been the active human agent in the redemption of the first Gentiles, is going to fall back into the same prejudice just a little while later in history. So much so that Paul actually references it in a letter he writes. In Galatians chapter 2, Paul gives us this incident. But when Cephas, that's another name for Peter, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. That's a group of people who thought you had to become Jewish before you could become Christian. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him. So that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. Notice how ingrained that is in Peter. The prejudice that he can be the active agent on a human level in their conversion, in their evangelism. He can have a vision from Jesus explaining to him that they're not unclean. He can be the source for Mark's gospel explaining this very passage. And yet he still falls into the prejudice. And notice what Paul says about it. This is fundamentally, quote, not in step with the gospel. In other words, what we should see in this text is Jesus drawing out the irrationality of malicious prejudice for any gospel-believing Christian. If you believe the gospel and have come to faith in Jesus Christ, you were once defiled and you have been made clean regardless of where you're from, regardless of what you've done. Peter is still struggling with that here. According to Paul, there's no room in the Christian faith for this kind of attitude. It's a sin. And yet our world drips with this. Everywhere you look right now, people are drawing lines, pure, defiled, clean, unclean, in, out. If you just take a minute and think about them, You've probably seen them in the news. You've probably heard about them in conversations with your friends. And if you take a minute to introspect on yourself, I bet you do it too. I know I do. Drew asked me when we were walking through my sermon, uh, maybe it would be helpful to give an example here. How do you do this? And without a second thought, I knew exactly how I do this. I know who my in-group and my out-group are. I'd start listing them, but I'd start offending you guys. Because you would all start wondering, wait, 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 is that me? Am I in? Am I out? I could list ones that I don't necessarily struggle with, but I know our culture does. But we'd start to be pretty divided when you started to realize how many different things in our culture push people apart. How many different external realities we grab a hold of rather than trusting the gospel. Practically speaking, this sort of pure, defiled, clean, unclean breakdown is just exhausting. And it's toxic. But more importantly, it's sin. Theologically speaking, this attitude is sub-Christian. It is below that which Christ calls us to. Yet Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, will still struggle with it. It doesn't matter that Gentiles held 
cultural or economic upper hand. It doesn't matter that Jews were a vassal state, that they were under the indignity of being under the false King Herod. We could attach all sorts of hip and incendiary terms to this that we've seen scattered across the news, scattered across podcasts, scattered across things that we read. But we ought to be more concerned that this is a sin. And so we need to examine our own hearts and ask ourselves, who are our Syrophoenician women? Who are people I think Jesus would have been dismissive of? We, like Peter, struggle with this. We all have an in-group and an out-group. That's not because we're inherently racist, sexist, elitist, Marxist, or anything else, but because Satan has come to steal, kill, and destroy. He wants to break down the unity of the church. He wants to drive us apart. He wants to isolate us from each other. This is why I'm so grateful for the gospel message of Ephesians 2. And you, speaking to all of us who call ourselves Christians, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passion of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Together with Christ. Notice the unity there. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ so that in the coming ages he might show his immeasurable riches of grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's not about who you are or what you've done, what rules you've kept, where you're from. This is not your own doing, but a gift from God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. At this point, I have to sort of pivot kind of awkwardly, because after talking about why prejudice is wrong for a little while, we have to return to the fact that that entire point was triggered by Jesus using basically a racial epithet to refer to this woman. So here goes. Back to verse 27, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. What just happened here? And like I said, I just spent like 10 minutes explaining why that's wrong, and then Jesus does it. He's dismissing this woman offhand because of her nationality, her ethnicity, and her religion. But actually, I don't think that's what's going on. I don't think that's true. Oddly enough, We should place this in the concept of when Jesus does this elsewhere in the text. You see, we don't always get upset when Jesus calls somebody a name. Think about the times you don't. I mean, just in the previous passage, he called religious leaders hypocrites. It's pretty harsh. One commentator says that scandal is the textbook move of Jesus. Throwing stumbling blocks in people's way, he affronts the Pharisees by calling them hypocrites to their face. Then he makes fun of their beloved tradition. Right in front of them, he insults this Gentile woman, hinting that she's a dog. One should allow the scandal to stand, however, and emphasize that one must overcome the scandal 
so that they can enter the door Jesus has opened for help. You see, the key to understanding this move is understanding when Jesus does it. Jesus insults and incites scandal when he wants to make sure there are no ulterior motives for coming to him. He wants to pare back every other reason you could come. Call a Pharisee a hypocrite? Why? He wants to make sure, does this guy really want to have a theological conversation where he might come to see the truth that Yahweh has given him? Or is he just trying to fest me in an argument so he can look good in front of his friends and gain some reputation? Does this woman really understand what I can do for her? Really understand the kingdom? Or does she just want me to fix her immediate situation? The commentator Mark Garland, again, is helpful here. He says, No one likes being called hypocrites, an evil generation, a brood of vipers, whitewashed tombs, foxes, or dogs. When we hear these things, our pride kicks in, and it keeps us from ever asking help again. And then what do we do? We turn to our gods of our own making who will not offend us because we are convinced in ourselves that we are special, that we are trustworthy, that we are deserving of God's grace and help. Only when we are truly desperate are we willing to do whatever it takes, including humbling ourselves to find God's help. Does Jesus ever call you out on things? Does he have the latitude in your life to point to where you are defiled, where you are unclean, so that he can clean it, so that he can make you pure? Do you have the humility to let him call you a dog so that he can open wide and show you the gates of the kingdom of heaven? I can give you a few guideposts to answer those questions. If you're not opening your Bible, you're not letting him confront you. If when you read your Bible, you never find anything uncomfortable, you're not letting him do his job. You're not letting him check your heart. You're not letting him challenge your sinful blind spots. If when you read the Bible, you always put yourself in the place of the good guy, David slaying Goliath, Moses trusting God and walking through the dry seas, if you're always in the place of the good guy or the commendable person, you're not letting him do it. You're not letting him challenge you. You are constructing for yourself a God of your own making who just close enough, if you squint and blur your eyes, will look enough like Jesus to get you through. We need to let the scriptures shine a painfully bright light on us to reveal our sin, to reveal our struggle, to reveal where we are defiled so that we can bring it to him and he can make us clean. You need to use the scripture like a 13-year-old uses a mirror before the high school dance looking really close to find any spot or blemish. We need to trust the Holy Spirit to graciously reveal our sin through the scriptures, through prayer, through engagements in the local church in order that we might be presented to God with no fear and no shame. Watch how this woman responds. Watch how we see in it the necessity for humility. But she answered him, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. She humbly accepts that she's unclean. 
You call me a dog. I don't care. I know I'm dirty. I know I'm defiled. And in doing so, in responding that way, she actually challenges multiple false notions we can have about the Bible. I mean, just for example, I look at, I see a lot of women here. A lot of people today would say, the Bible, this book, totally anti-women. If you read the Gospel of Mark, I don't understand how you can walk away with that. The disciples, 12 chosen men, have been on an adventure and missing the point since Mark chapter 1. And here, a woman, a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, is the first person in the Gospel of Mark to have a constructive conversation with Jesus about the reason he came and his mission in the world. Get that? She responds, and she responds inside a riddle he constructed. Who are the children? Who are the dogs? She gets it immediately. The disciples are still struggling with the bread thing from weeks prior, but she gets it immediately. (laughs) Tim Keller says we might characterize her answer as, oh, okay. So the gospel goes to the Gentiles later. That's fine. I'm okay with that. Make me a teaser trailer of the coming attraction. Show the other disciples what you will do for them by doing it to me first. Let me be a preview of the movie in full. If your kingdom is coming to us, show them what will be offered in me as a foretaste. And Jesus looks at her and he says, for that statement, the demon is gone. That which was unclean is cast out. Humility is required for discipleship. You cannot follow Jesus unless you are humble enough to let him call you unclean. Tim Keller again says, this woman comes to God like a laser beam. She completely accepts her unworthiness. Here's what she's saying. She's saying, I'm not coming to you on the basis of my goodness. I'm coming on the basis of yours. I'm not coming to tell you to accept me. I accept your insult of me. By not, but I'm asking you to overcome the insult and not treat me how I deserve, but how your mercy requires. Lord, I'm not saying give me what I deserve on the basis of my goodness. I'm saying give me what I don't deserve on the basis of yours. And I want it now. Give me what I don't deserve. You hear the feistiness in that? The assertiveness? Do you realize how remarkable it is that she penetrates through this challenge and she sees the offer? It's easy to miss. It's actually in just one word. First, let the children eat first. Not let the children eat only. Not let them eat alone. Let them eat first. The message will go to the Gentiles and she catches it in an instant. She seizes on that hope. When we recognize that it's because of God's goodness, not our own, all of our purity, defilement, clean, unclean, in, out, all of that starts to fall away. It doesn't matter anymore. In humility, we can follow Jesus walking arm in arm with others from a world's perspective that should be our enemies. But in the gospel, they can be our brothers and sisters when our sin is covered by the blood of Jesus and our hearts are regenerated by the Holy Spirit. 
On the other hand, the other option is pride. And it's said that pride has the grotesque power to transform even angels into devils. Satan uses pride as his favorite device when separating us from God and from God's help. Pride stiffens our knees so that we will not bow. Pride muzzles our voice so that we will not ask for help or call out in humble supplication. Our choice in this text is humility or pride. What are we going to choose? And I want to point one more thing out. This is just a bonus thing before we move into the conclusion. It's her belief in the power of God. Her belief in the intensity of the kingdom. Did you catch that the exorcism of a demon is just breadcrumbs to this woman? The overturning of the kingdom of darkness, the flipping the power switch on the demonic, the casting out of the spiritual forces of darkness are the crumbs off the table, not the meal. If those are the crumbs, what does the feast look like? This woman expects way more out of the kingdom than we do. The king's table is bountiful. So let me close this way. Returning to our thematic question that's driving this entire series forward, who is Jesus? Who is he in this text? It's very simple. In this text, Jesus is the one, the only one, who enables all who come to him in faith and repentance to be clean. 1 John 1, 7-9 summarizes it better than I could. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is a great and glorious truth. Jesus can make us clean regardless of who we are, regardless of where we've been, regardless of what we've done. The stains of sin can be washed off our hearts. And I want to point to just one thing I think in this text that's a practical ramification of that. And it's prayer. You see, this narrative sort of reveals three things about prayer. It tells us that the supposedly unclean, through Jesus, can approach God in prayer. You know, I've already explained at length how this woman's the poster child for an unclean person. Yet here, God grants her request when it is made to Jesus. This isn't to say God grants all requests, but it is to say that for one who has faith in Christ, God's ears cannot be closed by the parts of your past which make others squeamish. Second thing we can note is that prayer should be both humble and bold. I have basically made my voice hoarse with comments about her humility, which is so crucial. But let's not neglect the boldness of this text. Tim Keller again says, why is she so bold? I don't think this is the initial burst of boldness is anything surprising. It's not inexplicable. Do you know why? Because in our world, there's cowards and there's heroes and there's a bunch of people in between. And then there's a fourth category, and that's parents. You see, they're not on the spectrum. 
Because if your child is going over a cliff, you do whatever it takes to stop it. It doesn't matter whether you're timid or brazen when it comes to kids, you're bold. You cannot quantify how our prayers are effective. And if we want them to be effective, we can simply say one thing about a meaningful prayer life. Be bold because you are actually asking the God of the universe to intercede in hard and important things in yours and others' lives. Often we need nothing short of a miracle in order for disaster to be averted. So pray boldly. But also pray humbly. Because God doesn't listen because you and I are good. He listens because he is. Third and finally, in this text, we should note that she begged him. Which, to get into grammar terms, is an imperfect active verb. Matthew records this story, and he actually includes a whole bunch of extra dialogue, because what both Matthew and Mark are trying to communicate is that she was persistent in her prayer. She didn't stop. Everybody else in the room probably would have been uncomfortable if she kept on hectoring Jesus to answer Let me say it this way. Pray until you think you've annoyed God and then keep on praying. This woman is persistent and so should we be. It's well within the realm of possibility that our prayer lives lack in answers because we give up too easily. We give up and we think that person's outside of God's grasp or this situation is too big for him. Remember, exorcism is the breadcrumbs from his table. God wants a relationship with us, and so he often withholds the answer in order to build in us a desire to come back again and again and again as he shapes our hearts. So let's pray persistently. In fact, with Latin in mind, let's close and pray right now.